This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy on this Brexit weekend. I can hear the ruffle of papers there at EpiPen. Today on the show the theme is exercise. That's right. We're going to be exercising your body as well as your brain. First up, we'll be speaking with Associate Professor Dr. Peter Bruckner, a specialist sports and exercise physician. I hope I pronounced that name correctly. No, now, you haven't. You haven't. Bruckner? Bruckner, and he's a full straight, full-on professor. Well, on your website. It's, it's what I'm oh, modest, you know. <laughs> I'd do it the other way around. Uh, now, it would take the rest of the show to list all of Peter's awards and accolades. Let's just say there isn't a sport he hasn't been involved in, from heading up Olympic teams to looking after the health of AFL players, writing books, delivering keynote speeches at international conferences. The list just goes on and on and on. So we're excited to have him on the show talking about a very topical issue at the moment. Well, it'll not just drugs in sport, which is what we initially thought. It'll be sport altogether. We'll be firing questions at him left, right and centre. You'll be hearing it from the man who knows. So even if you've never hit, kicked or bowled a ball in your life, if you miss this segment, you will be kicking yourself. We have not just one professor on the show this morning, but two. Associate Professor Cassandra Zoki, I think is how I pronounce her surname, except she's just dashed off, but she'll be back in a second. She's a specialist, and she's a neurologist as well as a specialist at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and she's the director of the Healthy Ageing Project. Now, when you're 20 or even 30, ageing is the last thought on your mind. It was the last thought on our minds, I think, um, EpiPen or... You betcha. But, you know, the other psychiatrist here, she's too young, uh, sitting over there in the corner, perinatal. But once you're edging closer to 40, you wish you had thought more about it. And it's Cassandra's job to make us think about it today. Well, not just think about it, but move it. That's right, moving your body. Her research, done over two decades, has shown that exercise can have a very, very powerful effect on the health of your mind, not just your body. She'll be revealing the the details uh, very, very shortly. Now, in a former life, Dr. Thrills was a physiotherapist. Fast forward six years and he's now a doctor. What possessed him to do that? Well, the answer may lie somewhere in sport because this young man is determined to become an orthopedic surgeon and work with elite sportsmen and women. Interestingly, for a surgeon, or potential surgeon, he takes a philosophical view of things, especially sport, like why do we do it? Dr. Thrills will be sharing his insights with us and we'll be asking him which he prefers, physio or internship. Uh, hmm. Plus, we'll be joined by psychiatrist Dr. Perinatal and epidemiologist and spleen guru EpiPen. So stay with me, Dr. Mel Practice, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Dr. Perinatal. Good morning. Good morning, Mel. Nice to have you in. What's it like being under 40? <laughs> Tell me, do you wake up in the morning and go, oh, that doesn't hurt? <laughs> I, I have to say, I do wake up in the morning and say that. Actually, I wanted to talk just about something sure. that um, reminded me when you gave us your intro. You mentioned Brexit. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about what the mental health uh, com- I mean, implications might be of this kind of seismic change? I think we should. Yeah. First of all, let's just uh, welcome the rest of our team. Okay. Uh, EpiPen. Morning. Nice to have you in. Morning. And Dr... Sorry, Professor... You, you pronounce your name because I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, Peter Bruckner. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for coming <laughs> in. We're going to have you in... Uh, 
Commenting during our catch-up period of the show, where we talk about the latest news, and Brexit is on everybody's uh, lips. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So um, it just reminded me, because I, um, I do a bit of teaching uh, the registrars to prepare for their final psychiatric exam- exams, and one yeah. of them is they have to write a, a philosophical essay about stuff. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty hard to focus on when you're thinking about the other kinds of exams that you have to do in psychiatry, which are all about, you know, clinical knowledge and understanding the patient. So I've been giving them these tutorials on things like society and the world. Yeah. And the last time um, I did a tut on, on um, social exclusion, there's a World Health Organization report done on social exclusion recently, and they talked... Um, about particularly the Russian Federation and the changes in, you know, suicide rates and actually all-cause death rates in Russia after the end of the USSR. So massive increase in those sorts of death rates where the life expectancy of men actually dropped to 58 years after 1991. Why was that? Um, Alcohol poisoning, accidental injury, suicide, homicide, all sorts of death rates, except for the rate of death from cancer, which didn't change at all. Mm -hmm. So the thesis was that social instability has a big effect on people's state of mind and mm. it can have really huge effects on, you know, these really hard measures of um, mental health, like suicide. Yeah, I mean, the uncertainty too must be, I mean, yes, $2.7 trillion lost on stock markets, you know, those kind of measures are, are hard measures of the uncertainty, you know. And that Human beings don't like uncertainty. And and also change. Hmm. It's a big change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And when the GFC happened also in the European Union, there was this huge rate in increase increase rate in suicide, um, which then sort of settled down after two or three years. So I think we need to remember that these sorts of society-wide disruptions have a big effect on individuals. Yeah. You know, I I was saying to my kids who are teenagers that uh, this is probably the apart from the fall of the Berlin Wall, probably the most monumental piece of history-making in my lifetime. I think that's right, and totally unanticipated. Like, I really didn't think that this would happen at all. I came out of my private practice clinic in the afternoon and the receptionist said, oh, guess what? (laughs) England is out of the (laughs) European Union. I was like, really? On a Friday afternoon? Yeah, all these things happen. Now, you have some other news for us, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. EpiPen. Let's be informal. Now, you were going to talk about something about, was it bacteria, I remember? Yes. Uh, Just a quick catch-up. So I was reading the Australian on um, Monday the 20th of uh, this year, and um, there's a really good article from John John uh, Turnage. It's a hard one to say. And he is the guru that um, is the editor for the Australian Therapeutic Guidelines Antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So this is a really big thing that we've had to be uh, considering across all uh, Australia and yeah. the world, really. And um, interestingly, they did a survey asking people what they thought um, antibiotic resistance was, and 54% of Australians didn't ha- have a, didn't have a clue, didn't weren't concerned about it, and they're still thinking that they want antibiotics when they're feeling unwell, and especially because this is a winter period, and if they haven't had their flu shots, um, they're going to their GPs and asking for antibiotics, and really the, there's sort of a few problems with um, this because antibiotics are cheap. Mm. Going to a GP is cheap-ish. 
and there's not enough education around let's hang on to our antibiotic supplies because of this problem with resistance. So resistance is when you're when the bugs um, don't respond to an antibiotic. So when you get an infection, the doctors, if you're in a hospital, will plate it up on a little agar plate and then they'll do tests to see which antibiotics are, se- are sensitive to knock off this bacteria. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that now we're getting bugs that are very resistant mm-hmm. and they're saving up all their really big, expensive big guns to treat um, some of the bacteria. So we had a, a big problem about... Um, golden staff, people yeah, that, will remember that. So that's MSR, MRSA, so methicillin resistant staph aureus. And it's it's still lingering a little bit, but it's a big scary thing. So, you know, really we need to be thinking about um, educating people as well as GPs. The GPs have been very um, well informed, but now we have to help people understand that please don't push or ask your GPs for, for antibiotics when you're probably going to get over them and they're in the winter, they're highly more likely. They're more likely to be viral infections. Well, we had your brother-in-law on the show then <laughs> a couple of months ago. He was a very prominent GP, and I think he he's also been on the uh, therapeutic guideline uh, um, committee for for writing anti- for writing about antibiotic usage. And he was saying that that uh, as you say that 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 um, patients come in saying, "Look, I, I think I want antibiotics." And it's very hard for the GP at the front line to say no because. You know, you've got a relationship with the patient. You're not 100% sure if it's not bacterial. You know, the patient really wants it and you're under a lot of pressure. And uh, the line that, that people used to say was, look, you know, if I give you um, uh, antibiotics, then I'm increasing the amount of uh, bacterial resist- uh, antibiotic resistance in the community. But now there's evidence that you're actually increasing the amount of resistance in the patient as well. Like you might uh, increase the chances of them getting a bacteria that is resistant to antibiotics. So mm. when it's personalised, I think it's a much mm. more powerful mm. message. And just one, and yeah. one little last, last thing. We had a patient who um, doesn't have a spleen and she's always said, don't have penicillin, you will die. Her she's GP, a- her GP <laughs> was told, told her, you'll die if you have penicillin what? because she had a rash when she was a baby. Uh, still a baby. And yeah, there's yeah. this real misconception in the community about some of the allergies. Mm. Are they true? And um, she had a lot of problems with some of the antibiotics to thwart infections mm. anyway they they decided there's a new clinic at the austin mm. where they're testing people and challenging them with antibiotics so that they can work out exactly are, are these myths are these, these are they allergic to this antibiotic or was it just the, a rash that yes, you get like a, yes, like a like a dinkum yes. uh, life-threatening allergy Correct. or oh that's interesting Is that, that's at the austin now that that's, that's at the austin oh, that's really interesting thank you uh EpiPen. now whenever we talk about uncertainty and uh and distress so i always give out the lifeline number if you are feeling uncertain the number is one three one 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 four one three one 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 four it's the number for lifeline 24 hours a day coming up in a second, we'll be talking about all things sport. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now, uh, you know, Peter, just for you, we're running the Triple R Community Cup this afternoon. Major event down at Elstonwick Park. Triple uh, R versus uh, Rock Dogs. It's a fantastic occasion. Um, and I thought, what a good opportunity to talk about Anything to do with exercise and movement. So we're going to hit you with some questions. Far away. Rio. What are the, what are the big things going to be in Rio? Uh, well, um, like every Olympics, it's a panic. You know, there's uh, 41 days, if you tells me, before the uh, start of Rio. There's always a panic. It's not ready. You know, it's a disaster. This is not finished. That's not finished. 
every Olympic's always been like that. It'll turn out fine on on, uh, on <laughs> yeah. the day. It always does. You know, they're, they're painting the lines on the track the night before, but they get it done. But even the drug um, testing. Unit. Yeah, well, that's that's right. I mean, the, yikes. The, the issues are going to be uh, obviously Zika's been a big. The Zika virus has been a big uh, issue, uh-huh. and uh, it's totally confusing. I mean, you get you know one group of specialists saying it's a it's a disaster and we should be moving the Olympics, and the other group of specialists saying uh, in August there's no mosquitoes and it's going to be fine and so on. So I'm totally confused about Zika. Um, there's certainly... Uh, you know, Hang on, cons- you're confused about that. <laughs> <laughs> what hope for the rest of us? Uh, exactly. So um, look, uh, there are certainly concerns among pregnant or potentially pregnant uh not so much competitors, although some of them, but uh, staff members, for instance, oh, uh, support right, staff yeah. members. Family. I know there are a couple of people who are not. I know a number of people who are yeah. not going for that uh, for yeah. that reason. So there's so Zika is uh, an issue. Uh, the quality of the water in the, the sailing. There's you know they they sail along. There's all little plops of poo and you know, a sort of a sail past and so on. So and, that, and resistant that's drugs. Not, that's resistant, not great. Yeah, they're bacteria. concerned about uh, bacteria and the the quality of the water in the sailing venue. And uh, then there's a bit of uh, violence. There's quite a bit of violence around. I mean, a number of uh, people who've been in Rio yeah, preparing right, for yeah. uh, preparing for events have uh, have uh, had problems. But I think the two big issues, as far as the sport goes, one is the drugs thing, which is uh, massive at the moment. Uh, mm. The Russians are uh, you know being threatened of being kicked out of the uh, the Olympics. Uh, Hang on a second. I thought the track and field team was banned. Well, or? they uh, they came out and uh, said that the Russians, uh, the IWF, which is the, the athletics body. Uh, said that the Russians couldn't compete. They're now saying that if they can prove that they're clean, uh, I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure how they do that, that they're allowed to compete under a neutral flag. So I'd say, you know, as usual, they're being a bit wishy-washy. I mean, and my belief is that the whole Russian team should be kicked out. I mean, there's obvious evidence of systematic government-sponsored doping in Russia at the moment, as there was in East Germany mm. in the 1980s, and they should kick a lot of them out. Fair enough. Absolutely. When you say neutral flag, what is neutral flag? Oh, you know, the Olympic flag, the march on the Olympic flag, some nonsense, you know. But, uh, you know, it, it's uh, they've got to take a stand. I mean, this drugs thing is, is just ruining sport at the moment. Uh, I thought, you know, 10 years ago we were sort of starting to win the battle and so on, but, uh, you know, this uh, some of the stories coming out of Russia are just, uh, just horrendous. Now, and, you were uh, telling me outside, and actually I've read this on your website, um, because I like to do a bit of research on guests before they come on the show. Yeah, that you uh, were are were a historian uh, about the Olympics, and this has kind of really blunted your enthusiasm. It has, yeah. I just don't have the same buzz about this uh, this Olympics that, that I normally do, and I think it's because of the because uh, of the drug thing. I mean, so you know, I went to uh, Jared Talent's gold medal uh, award uh, the other day. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. you might remember yeah. that uh, this is an Australian walker who yeah. uh, who was sort of robbed of his gold medal in. Uh, in in London uh, by a, a Russian walker who was disqualified and mm. they allowed him back for you know two weeks of the Olympics. It was just a ridiculous situation, and uh, it, it's very likely that four years previously yeah. he was also uh, got the silver, and uh, and the guy was probably uh, taken has subsequently been uh, banned, but he, he probably won't get that mm. gold medal as well. So, you know, it just makes you sort of uh, think well. You know what's it all about? I mean, you know, you get up there on and you know win the gold medal, and you get up and you get your gold medal, and who knows? You know, f- four years time, you know, it might be taken off you mm-hmm. or, or uh, so on. So, I just think it's a really, uh, really sad situation at the moment, I and mean, we've got to, uh, you know, we've got to do something about it. Okay, so there is a medico in your year of medicine, Rob, who's also a philosopher, Julian Savalescu, who said, "Why don't we just forget about drugs and let everybody have them, and then it's just an open field?" What? 
you know, why, why don't we do that? Yeah, look, that's, you know, that's, that seems to become more and more attractive as, as the problem, you know, becomes intractable. But, uh, uh, look, I, I, you know, then, you, then, then the person who wins is the one who's got the best drugs, the most expensive drugs. Um, and, and the damage that, you know, I mean, there's that famous uh, you know, survey they did of, of, of elite athletes and, and uh, they asked them, you know, if, uh, if you were given a drug that would guarantee you winning a gold medal and, uh, and you would also be guaranteed to be dead within 12 months, would you still take it? And 75% of them said they would. So, uh, you know, so that's the sort of mentality that, uh, that, that you get. So I just don't think you can give an open slather. You'll finish up with all sorts of... Uh, Issues, people pushing the uh, the barriers and, and basically uh, it, doing ridiculous things. I mean, we're going to be talking about this later with Dr. Thrills, but it's about what the nature of sport is. I exactly. mean, I mean exactly. you get my understanding of it is that it brings out the best in us and the, sort of the excellence and something that uh, younger people or, or anybody really can model themselves on. Is this is a human being excelling. And that's what that's what sports always been yeah. about, and it, and unfortunately, uh, where money's involved in any walk of life, you know, if if money taints and corrupts. And uh, and once you get professional sport, and there's huge rewards for uh, for you know huge differences between winning and losing, then you're always going to have uh, have these issues of uh, of corruption. Now, on a sort of slightly different tack, but under I guess the rubric of um, drugs in sport, uh, Sharapova, just take us through that. What was the stuff that she was supposed to have taken, and why is it bad, and uh, so forth? Yeah, look, it's a complex thing, but I'll try and keep it re- really simple. It, it's you're speaking call- to a psychiatrist, so you know, nice and simple. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Small yeah. words. Yeah, they're all, all weird, so can't just... Yeah, um, anyway, it's a drug called meldonium, which is only... Meldonium. Meldonium. It sounds um, like something made up in a movie, meldonium. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's only available in uh, Russia and, and the Russian, uh, the Baltic states, you know, Latvia and Lithuania and so on. It's not licensed in the US or the UK or Australia. Well, it's, a, it's supposedly, you know, uh, was given to her, to, to Sharapova and lots of other athletes um, to help their, you know, cardiovascular state, you know, some people say it's for diabetes. Some people say it's for you know uh, help your immune system. It's a bit vague as to what it's uh, what it's for, but it's become very popular. And uh, that the, the drug people sort of became aware that a lot of people were taking uh, meldonium, and uh, so they put it on trial for a year. They tested for meldonium without it being banned. They tested for it, and they discovered that there are lots and lots of athletes in Europe, particularly, that were taking uh, meldonium. So they then announced uh, last September that they were going to add meldonium to the list of banned substances come January the 1st. Right. So it's pretty widely publicised, this, this list, uh, all doctors and sports yeah. people and coaches and everything like that. Anyway, supposedly um, lots of athletes like Sharapova did not become aware of that and her people, you know, she has numerous people who look after her, didn't do a very good job of, uh, of looking after her. And so she continued taking this meldonium and uh, tested positive at the, at the Australian Open. And as it was now a banned drug, then she becomes guilty of taking a, a banned drug. Now, she claims that she'd been taking it for years and years and that she was taking it for medical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now Bex, the, can I just say yeah. medical reasons? Right. I looked up that and it's for treating angina and yeah, myocardial yeah, infarctions. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it, it was pretty dangerous. Doubtful, but uh, she had a, a you know she was taking like thirty medications at one stage with, with this Russian doctor, and then she, mm. she sacked them, and she kept three medications going, mm. uh, including this uh, this meldonium. Um, 
but uh, so when you test positive to a, a banned drug, you know, basically yeah. uh, you you know you have a uh, series of, or have a, a basic four year ban now. Okay, so that the full ban is is four years. Now you can get that reduced. Um, so for instance, uh, she had hers reduced to two years on the basis that uh, she wasn't knowingly taking a banned mm-hmm. drug. I mean, she's you know she, Fair enough. they believe that she didn't know it was banned. Um, now she wanted a uh, further reduction, which you can get on on various bases. Mm-hmm. But there are a few things that sort of went ag- against her. Mm-hmm. Now, for a start, she never declared that she was taking uh, meldonium. So mm-hmm. when you get a, have a drug test, you have to write down all the drugs that you're taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, so oh, I took Panadol yesterday, yeah. and I took a you know an anti-inflammatory last week or something like that. Never ever did mm-hmm. she uh, say that she was taking this uh, this drug. So mm-hmm. that you know that that didn't help her. Mm-hmm. Um, then it, it turned out that instead of you know taking it for health reasons, which you'd imagine she would take every day, mm. she only took it on the day she played and played mm. a match. So mm. uh, she was clearly taking it for performance enhancement mm. and so on. So again, she didn't get a lot of sympathy when she said, "Oh, it's you know it's for my diabetes mm. or my whatever and so on." So, so these uh, these were issues that uh, mitigated against her getting it. She's appealing it against mm. uh, her, mm. her two years suspension to try and get it reduced, um, but I don't think she'll be be successful. So she's uh, she's out for two years. Um, you know. She loses a lot of money, but, uh, you know, she can afford it. You know, as you were talking, I just came up with a great idea. How about this? How about when, um, you know, whenever you're playing in an international uh, meet, even including the Olympics, and you win first, or someone wins first, second and third, they don't actually get their medal. They get a certificate which will award them a medal in a year's time if they're like a probationary medal if they're proven to be drug-free. Because what often happens now is we're playing catch-up, aren't we? Yep. And yes. that's the problem. Yeah, that's the trouble. And it's, it's always been that case. It's not nothing new. The, the athletes and their, and their biochemists and their, you know, their people who mm. are looking after them are always a step ahead of the drug testers. So, you know, the, the drugs, uh, we, we, uh, they take uh, a hormone like EPO, yeah. and, you know, like, which is the big Tour de France drug. You know, they take that for, for a long time and then the drug testers finally find a test for, for EPO. And so they don't take that. So they then microdose. So instead of taking a big dose, they take just a tiny little bit every day. So it doesn't come up, doesn't show up in the drug no, test and, and things like that. So yeah. there's, there's always ways uh, around it. And, uh, and there's always new drugs. And that's why, you know, they, re- they store the samples. So let's say your, your guys get in a first, second and third in the, in the Olympics in Rio or wherever. They will then, they'll be drug tested on the day. Let's assume they are, their test is negative because uh, they're yeah. taking some new fancy drug that doesn't show up in the, in the and drug test. And this is urine or blood? Uh, ur- both, both urine and blood. And uh, but then they store the blood, and uh, four years later, for instance, they might yeah. re-examine it when they have uh, better techniques or they're aware of these newer drugs, and uh, find out then. But you know, the guys had four years as Olympic gold medalist. And, yeah. uh, you know, so the, your your theory is fine, but w- at what stage do you do you make it official? You know, mm. uh, and and you know, surely one of the great things about the Olympics is is that medal ceremony and, and so on. And you're also you're punishing the the clean athletes, of which there are mm. still a few, mm. I think. So what? So yeah. So why does got an Annual budget of thirty million dollars. What mm. what what are they doing with this? So WADA stands for World Anti-Doping um, Organization. That doesn't sound like a Sorry. like a lot to be honest. Thirty million. million. But it doesn't sound like a lot for a world association covering all these athletes. But yeah. if it's well, 
Aspire, no, is it? Well, an, part of part of it, it has a number of different roles. I mean, one of it is uh, is obviously the drug testing, um, and and that's a, that's a massive. They're expensive. Drug tests are uh, expensive. It costs a few hundred dollars to do every test. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you're going to do every athlete on a regular basis, because in competition tests, you know, largely uh, they get around that very easily. It's the out of competition tests that uh, so someone knocks on your door at six o'clock in the morning uh, and uh, you know test you uh, unannounced and uh, they're the tests that have some chance of getting uh, of catching people but uh, it's too easy to avoid these tests a lot of the people just uh, you know you're supposed to tell the authorities where you are the whole time and uh, you know you just happen to be out that day and you know you make mm-hmm. up some good excuse and so on so it's relatively it's too easy to get around these uh, these tests so what a um, it, it's very expensive plus the other, th- the other thing is that nowadays they don't catch people through drug testing. They catch them through investigations. Yeah. You know, the whole Lance Armstrong yeah. thing and all these sort of uh, uh, Marion Jones and so on, they never tested positive. But they were found out because someone, you know, they... they rubbed someone up the wrong way and they impress- dobbed, yeah. dobbed them in and, yeah. uh, you know, or some, some coach was annoyed and uh, or yep. some competitor yep. was annoyed and, and so on and, and they dobbed them in. So you then have to conduct investigations which are very expensive and so on. So I think, you know, WADA could have ten times its uh, its budget and, and still uh, still be struggling to catch everyone. So in the 60 seconds we've got left, what are you going to do to fix this whole thing, do you reckon? Uh, well, I think a really good step would be to kick the Russians out. Mm-hmm. You know, I reckon that's that's making a statement saying, you know, we've had enough of this. You know, um, let's let's make a stand here. So like an example and, uh, of yeah, the exactly. country, okay? Yeah, and sure, you know, there might be some clean athletes. I'm not sure there are any clean athletes in Russia, but there may be some. Um, but uh, you know, let's kick them out, and that that's a good start. Let's give WADA uh, some real uh, guts. Let's give them a lot more money um, to uh, to investigate uh, these people, and let's be absolutely uh, ruthless with uh, with people who test positive. Let's let's ban them for life. You know, you don't get a second chance. That's yeah. fairly hardcore. Well, we're, we're not, you know, we're not winning. You know, so there's no point just continuing on as we are because clearly sport at the elite level is becoming tainted, and uh, and that's sad. And as you said, you know, sport should be a positive. It should be a wonderful thing for uh, for community, and it's all about you know the health and and, and competition and all those sort of positive things. Mm-hmm. And it's being spoilt by this uh, by this drug thing, and we've got to be ruthless. And just one last question: What about having somebody on the WADA committee or the drug testing um, crew that was a convicted um, or somebody that was caught? You know, they would know the ins and outs. Like they, a hacker. Like, yeah, yeah, they would know. They would know well, what goes on. Yeah, I think they do have you know a fair bit of expertise and yeah. uh, know, you know knowing what goes on behind the scenes. But it's uh, lots. It's a constant challenge. I don't think we can take. You know, we can give up. You know, yeah. as has been suggested, but uh, we've got to keep at it, and I think we've got to be even more ruthless and, uh, um, yeah. You think zero tolerance? Zero tolerance. Oof, no, I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. Yeah, I don't know if that always works, but I appreciate uh, you coming in. We've got to get you back in, mate. You're just fantastic. We can just push that button and off you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter Bruckner, right. for coming in. We will uh, definitely get you back. Triple R, not for everyone. For anyone. Oh, it is a uh, full-on show this morning, a flurry of activity. We are joined by Associate Professor Cassandra Zucke. So your name isn't phonetic. It sound, I mean, whereabouts are you from, Cassandra, or where are your parents from? I should I'm ask. from Australia. Yeah? <laughs> where, 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 can I ask you where your parents are from? Totally made-up surname. Oh, really? Totally made-up. Because it's S-Z-O-E-K-E. So it's S-Z-O-B-L-A. K-E, so O with two dots, Hungarian. Oh, yeah. But the English typist wasn't able to to do the O with two dots. <laughs> Fair income. 
But that happens so often. You hear about these immigration stories where they get the name round the wrong way, so Jonas becomes Jones, your first name. Interesting story. Now, the real reason we got you in is because you're a neurologist from the Royal Melbourne. Mm-hmm. You're a director of the Healthy Ageing Project. Yes, at the University of Melbourne. And you've been following people for 20 years, is that right? Or did I make that up? The university has, personally, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. Not that old. Um, yes, for 25 years we've been looking at people um, initially through midlife, looking yeah. at health, and now um, into ageing. So tell us what you found when you looked at these people so look um with the study we've done recently as a neurologist i was very interested in cognition so we're thinking yes absolutely so that's uh, memory looking at verbal memory Mm -hmm. because um the greatest disease on the rise in our community particularly aging community is now dementia Mm -hmm. so it's now risen just in the last couple of years to the top three causes um, of of disease really in in people over 65 yeah So we were really interested in looking at memory. In the last five to ten years of research in dementia, we're starting to understand that, in fact, dementia might occur over 65. However, there's a pre-dementia, which is now called mild cognitive impairment. This is a diagnosis that was just discovered in the last few decades, which precedes actual full-blown dementia. And we're also understanding that, in fact, the first changes in the brain that are associated with dementia happen even earlier than that. Because this isn't one of these diseases that we doctors make up, like mild cognitive impairment. This is a fair thing. It's not like just, oh, I'm forgetting where I put my keys because I'm getting old type stuff. Fair dinkum thing. Yeah? Yes. So how do you know when you've got mild cognitive impairment? What kind of symptoms would somebody have? <laughs> Look, I will <laughs> say... <laughs> I will say that a lot of people worry about their memory because many people have trouble now and again with their memory. Yeah. In fact, people who have dementia often feel they have no problem with their memory. Ah, okay. So there have been a lot of interesting studies looking at what we call subjective memory complaints, which is worrying about your memory. Right, right. And by and large, the majority of studies have shown that if you're worried about your memory, it's actually not related to getting dementia. Really? So if I'm worried about it, it's not a real problem? Well, so if you look at many studies and our study included, about half the people over the age of 60 say they're worried about their memory. But, so that's and, quite and, but a lot, a lot of, of them actually didn't have a problem. That's right. correct. Okay. However, having said that, now that we're looking very closely at memory problems, mm. it looks like they may be predictive in some people asking the right sort of questions. Mm. But general kind of memory problems are not mm. predictive. So let's cut to the chase. You found that if mm. your cohort, that Melbourne, Royal, that Melbourne University, Royal Melbourne Hospital, has been following for 20 years... If they did some exercise, something happened. So what we did was we looked at people across 25 years. We did 15 years of cognitive measures, looking at their verbal episodic memory to look at change. What's verbal episodic memory? So uh, verbal episodic memory is uh, simply memory for words. All right, okay. Um, What we did was a word list. We asked them to remember the word list, Mm -hmm. and then 30 minutes later we asked them to remember the word list. And so how many words... 30 minutes?! how many words I remembered on the list. What's the average number? You should remember most of the words, almost all of the words. 
So when you're that, younger. Is that eight or ten or twelve? Well, or? it depends how long the word list is. So there's lots of different words. Oh, lists for different ages. Use, yeah. oh, right, 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 no, right. no, for different tests. So there's okay. lots of different word lists out there. But basically what we found is looking at their memory over these 25 years, many studies have shown that as you get older, you remember less things. Right. And we showed that too. So over the 25 years, on average, we did see a drop in people's memory. Right. We saw the people who were exercising, mm-hmm. the people who had good blood pressure, mm-hmm. and the people who had Good, good cholesterol, like mm. high-density lipoprotein, yep. had better memory than people who weren't. Right. And is good cholesterol a good diet? Good cholesterol is good diet, yes. Right. So what sort of exercise were these people doing which maintained their memory? So in this analysis that we just published, we mm. weren't prescriptive about what kind of exercise. Mm. We did look at two different variables. Exercise that makes you breathe really hard because we were expecting it had to be really aerobic yeah. fit exercise that might be having the greatest impact. But in fact, it was a variable that was any exercise really? that had this benefit. So we weren't prescriptive. Anyone who was doing activity every day had the greatest benefit. And it was um, linear, which means... The more you were doing exercise, the more it was benefiting so there, your memory. There was a dose response. The more exercise you did, the more minutes of exercise, the more words you remember down the track. But this was an observational study. So we observed that those people doing activity on a daily basis had the best memory 25 years later. Yeah, and what do you, sort of physiologically, what do you reckon the association is there? More blood flow to your scone, therefore better memory? We do think that the mechanism may be vascular. So there have been some studies in the past looking at people with dementia who have done physical activity and they get improvements with cognition. Mm-hmm. And there's a current study underway at the University of Melbourne led by Professor Lautenschlager mm-hmm. looking at actual brain changes with people doing activity so we can see if there's actual vascular benefit from the exercise. So that's a randomised control trial, which is what you have to do to answer those kind of questions. So, Rob, you're not going to score very well. Mal, because we've Mal, Mal. Mal. Mal, sorry. Mal, um, you're not going to score very well because we had a guest on here a couple of months ago, a neuropsychologist that was talking about a similar kind of thing and she she sort of attributed it to increased oxygen levels and opening up arterials in brains. Yeah. Do you, do you think, and like, and that would then translate to structural changes, obviously, in the brain and neurochemical changes in the brain. We're, I would speculate. There are so many positive benefits yeah. from activity. So I'm answering the brain changes, but if you look at activity overall, I mean, just in ageing research, we've shown that people who live longer and live older with better function mm. are people who do more physical activity throughout their lives. So mm. there, there's a definite global benefit to doing activity. It reduces inflammation. It's associated with less disease, accrual. And so I think there's probably more benefit than we even recognise. So I thought specifically with cognitive, that is thinking exercises, the good ones to do, as in body exercises, are things like dancing, where you've got to remember certain steps and move your body at the same time because it's kind of exercising your brain and your body. I think you raise a really good point there. So when we look at physical activity, there's many components to it. There's that extra blood flow, the extra fitness to the muscles, the movement and all of those positive cardiovascular heart kind of benefits. But there's also the coordination benefits and the cognitive benefits on the type of activity you do. These also relate to social benefits. So many people do physical activity in social circumstances and social settings. And in our cohort, some of these women were walking. That was their activity and they were doing it daily, they rarely did it alone. So you, yeah. there's all these other benefits to activity. I don't know we could say 
precisely that it was just a certain activity. Yeah, I mean, this is our nature, though, as scientists, as well, not a scientist, to become reductionist. That is to try and find the chemical or the hormone, which, you know, is the the um, the number one factor in explaining some physical phenomena but it's not just biology it's the psychological effects of doing exercises as well because you get this sense of mastery like you complete a goal and you think wow i've done this i'm feeling so much better and the social effects that you're talking about as well that you know i get to meet people and discuss things and keep up with world events and look at new things you know in the park and you know play with a dog blah 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 well, I think the great benefits of medicine over the last century have occurred by this reductionist understanding of disease. And now that we are living to 80, 90, mm. 100, 120, hopefully, yeah. Yeah. we can change our focus a little bit to look at the broader health gains and not just look at removal of disease, which was our focus. Mm-hmm. We were focused on removal particularly of infectious disease. Now we can look at quality of life function and there's been a shift in medicine to look at these things rather than just disease Hmm. so if you're speaking to uh your patients our our triple r audience what kind of um advice would you be giving people generally about exercise and and healthy aging move more move often yeah (laughs) simple that should be like a little sticker triple r move more more, move often um but but that it's, it's simple to say but it's quite it's quite it's quite um, tricky in that so much of our days are spent not moving, sitting at desks, taking the elevators, driving to work. What kind of simple things do you reckon people could do in their working lives that would change that? I think that's a really important point. And if you look at... We've known for a long time physical activity helps heart health. So this message has been coming for quite some time. It's very hard for people to do. We know, we've particularly looked at when we look at 22,000 women and asked them, how much physical activity are you doing um, across the whole of Australia nationally? We found that less than 25% were doing the recommended levels of physical activity. Um, So we know that people are unable to take up these recommendations, but we have to look at the recommendations. So I think when people say, do three days a week, 30 minutes of intensive exercise. When you're being very prescriptive, it's very hard for people to fit that into their schedule. I think we have to be um, a little bit more relaxed about any kind of activity and also look at the environment. As you say, the desk jobs, the the way our environment has been constructed is very different. If you look at um, Japan, where they have the greatest um, uh, longevity, um, there is actual physical activity structured into their workplaces and the the whole culture... How do you mean? What do they do like standing so, desks or no 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 they do um activities and exercises in the morning it's part of culture it's oh really so yeah, they all get together and do like an aerobics even, class even something? at workplaces even at workplaces so there's a lot on urban design and the whole you know discussion i mean australia is a huge country yeah. um, and we're very spread out in our cities so it's not as easy i suppose to cycle from place to place um given some people are in the car for 40 minutes yeah, yeah. um but there's these issues of urban design that can really help us to become more active. Yeah. I've been encouraging my wife as a physio to write a book about things you can do in the car, you know, um, you know, iso, what's it, isometrics, isotonics, because we spend so much time in the car. And I've got little exercise balls and squidgy things that I try and use in the car because I just get sick of sitting there. Do you know what women do at the traffic lights in the car? Makeup. Pelvic floor <laughs> exercises. <laughs> Really? That's what they're doing? <laughs> I won't I'll look down next time. I won't look across. Um, yeah, look, there are so many things. That, and I think you're right. I think our kind of culture is changing uh, in the workplace, certainly in my workplace. I've seen standing desks um, 
like uh, multiply in the last year and people taking the stairs. The number of people I meet taking the stairs is, is you know, it used to be like it was dusty, you know, you wouldn't meet anybody and now you can meet people just coming up and down through the stairs and also walking, parking their cars further away and walking to work as well. You know, it's those kind of really, what's it called, implicit type of bits of exercises that we can Incidental do today. Exercise. Incidental exercise. And that's, that's, what what you should, that's why I say move more and move often. If you're just always thinking about it, That'll happen. I've got another one, last little tip. Yeah. Um, when in the supermarket, just while you're waiting to get your clothes... Do your, dips. Your, your, yeah, hold on to your bags and just do those <laughs> incidental exercises. Get lots of potatoes in each bag and off you go. Uh, yes, I can see people doing that all over. Um, thank you so much, Cassandra Zuke, for coming in and telling us about exercise. Three triple R. And we are joined by Dr. Thrills. Hey, um, you're playing in the Community Cup, aren't you? I am. I am. Um, Chris Gill, who's outside in the green room, just told me to mention I'm the reigning Steve Connolly medalist. So I've got to uh, represent the Megahertz again this year. And uh, was it Megahertz versus the Rock Dogs? Yes, that's yeah. it. <laughs> the traditional matchup. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of rounds beforehand to come to the eventual grand final, which is the same two teams every year. <laughs> <laughs> For about the last twenty years, yeah, the same exactly, two teams. Exactly. And what position do you play? Um, I just play wherever the coaches tell me to play. Okay. Um, yeah, last year I played on um, one of their good players. So, yeah, well, well it's as long as the sun's shining um, and the bands are good, then we've achieved the purpose That's of the day. It's to raise some money for raise some money for Reclink. Fantastic. So, you tell us more about Reclink. Reclink, yeah, I really like this charity actually. Um, I don't know a lot about it, but the the premise is that um, people who are sort of um, outside the normal societal bounds and the drug and alcohol affected and possibly homeless um, start interacting more with um, the community through sporting and arts events. So um, they run, I think, out of South Melbourne um, uh, in Melbourne and they run sporting programs, art programs and I think um, sport is a really good way of um, engendering comradeship and um, teamwork and a reason to sort of uh, get up in the morning and a uh, reason to be responsible about the choices you make in your life yeah. and um, yeah, I really support the charity so it's a, it's a great day. Now we should talk a bit mm. about you and uh, your segment. Just tell us, let the listeners know uh, we'll give them a peek into mm. the career of Dr. Thrills. Um, okay. So I started out as a physiotherapist, um, and my first job was in professional sport. Um, went to Germany um, sort of as a, like a student placement, worked with um, FC Bayern Munich for a couple of weeks. Um, learned, yeah, learned some things over there about you know, how they practice um, sports medicine. Came back here, did a couple of placements at the Alfred and just, then just thought, well, the, the things that I love about physiotherapy and things about, that I love about, um, about the hospitals were all medical things. Yeah. Um, I met a 90-year-old woman who um, just had a stroke on a Wednesday and she said, you know, look, um, I know all of this assessment's important, but what I really want to know is can I play the club championship golf on, the, on Saturday? <laughs> And I said, look, Betty, let's just see how you go walking first. And she said, look, you know, there's not a dress rehearsal. I gave up tennis two years ago because my shoulders are a bit sore, but I still walk the course and I still want to play. And I was like, well, you know, it, life isn't a dress rehearsal, so I yeah. decided to apply for medical school. And then, okay. uh, yeah, went from there. And you want to be an orthopedic surgeon? Correct. Yes. 
Rightio. <laughs> I'll, I'll stem on my. Uh, I'll, I'll engage my frontal lobe, but not yeah. to come out with all my uh, orthopedic surgeon jokes. So sure. You you know, tell us about the philosophy behind sport. Why we actually do sport? Yeah. So I'm after I finished physiotherapy and then during from medical school, I did a bit of work um, with professional sporting teams yeah. in Sweden, Germany, um, and here in Melbourne. And I just thought, like, I'm a very existential person belying the fact that I want to be a common kind of orthopedic surgeon. Um, it's called that in, in our parlance, that's called cognitive dissonance. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, that's right. Well, you know, maybe things are changing. But I, I think, I mean, with our society, you know, we, there's a big problem with people not moving enough and eating too much. And uh, I think it's something that we could all learn from. So I thought, well, how do I justify this position and a passion for professional sport at an elite level? And I think that... At its heart, professional sport is an inspiration for younger people to see how things could be done and how life could be led in a more healthy and happier way. So um, I guess developing that thought through, it sort of justified the reason why I liked kind of that area of, of work. Um, and hopefully that, that, um, that healthy example is an inspiration for children to get out and move more, whether they want to play professional sport or otherwise. So do you reckon it's something to do with heroism and having heroes who we can look up to and who we can try and be like? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because I, I also found that it probably goes without saying that if you want to compete at that elite level, you can't, you, you can't, you have to be honest with yourself. You can't, you've got to eat the right things, you've got to move the right way, you've got to take your coach's advice to perform in the way that will meet the standards of a professional athlete. Um, and it goes with children as an example, you know, if you want to perform well at school, if you want to perform well on the sporting field, you have to follow the advice of your elders, which is kind of sometimes you need to disobey and uh, find new paths but essentially that's a kind of good model life model to follow what do you reckon team sports teach kids because i mean individual sports like track and field you know there's that sort of very strict self-discipline but do you reckon there's Mm. something well there is something different about a team What, what do you reckon it is um well i can even just speak about the community cup team that we have here i mean we all come in here as broadcasters we don't see each other that often we don't uh, interact that much more than outside our music sphere but we get together on a sunday morning um get sweaty get hot and shout at each other and it kind of brings a new respect and a new kind of in German, you take gemeinsam, like a, a togetherness, um, to uh, to um, achieve a common goal. And I think uh, you don't really get that that whole like mental, physical um, task um, development in, in in other ways. See, philosophically, because you know mm. you brought in the whole philosophy idea when yes. I was speaking to you before the show. Yeah. Um, I, I reckon uh, team sports bring in something that we're lacking that is slipping away in society and that notion of the other that we've become more and more um fractionated it's very much about the individual and who am mm. i yeah and i think that's a cause of lots of social problems because we mm-hmm. don't feel supported and you know it's all about me and I, nobody else is out there for me mm-hmm. was with a team you've got this kind of uh net that they, they will care for you and you will care for them and you have responsibilities to the team in the mm. same way they have responsibilities 
to you. And I remember this when um, my, my son's playing uh, teenage soccer and the coach is just fantastic. He just said, look, you know, you look after each other. If somebody leaves behind something on a, on a, on a field, you go pick it up because mm. it's your team, whether it's yeah. a jacket or a bottle or whatever. Yeah. And I just, you know, that's the kind of mentality that I think... Um, you know that we're kind of losing a bit with with loss of of, of um, cohesiveness in society. And so that's my philosophy about it. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, and I think that often these things are as sporting teams are developed as a child, possibly, and then people um, lose them quite quickly when they come out of the schooling system, mm-hmm. and um, they they may might look for something that that will provide them the same level of um, cohesion, but it's not not often there. So. In the oh, so time goes so quickly. In the kind of thirty seconds we got left, what do you reckon people? How do you reckon people should view sport? Because I mean, I was never a big person into sport till about mm. sort of five, ten years ago. Yeah. What do you reckon? How can we turn our heads around to think about it differently? Um, well, I think it's just a necessity. We find time to um, eat. We find time to sleep. We find time to talk to our friends. We should find time to um, move. I mean, if it's sport, sport's the best way to be outside. Get some vitamin D. Get your bones strong. Um, then you need to find time to play it. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Do mm-hmm. it anywhere. Exercise, moving, anywhere you can, any way you can. With your shopping bags. Shopping bags full yeah. of potatoes. <laughs> you have been listening to Dr. Thrills. Thank you so much for coming in, Dr. My Thrills. Pleasure. You'll make a fine orthopedic surgeon, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, just need a sort of luxury European car. You know. <laughs> um, you've been listening to Radiotherapy. Coming up in about 10 seconds' time is Einstein a go-go. Thank you to all our guests for coming in today and telling us all about sport. It's been a great show. We'll catch up with you next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock for some more Radiotherapy. <laughs> This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.